Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at keys to leading innovative companies, why innovation leaders should be ringleaders and referees more than visionaries, the importance of creative abrasion, creative agility, and creative resolution to the innovation process, and why it's imperative to establish a company culture with a sense of community and psychological safety. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Greg Brando. Greg is co-author of the recently published Collective Genius, the art and practice of leading innovation. Collective Genius was named one of the 20 best business books to read this summer in 2014 by Business Insider, alongside other notable books like Think Like a Freak and books by Twitter founder Biz Stone and LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman. Greg is the former COO and president of Maker Media, and he's also the former CTO of the Walt Disney Studios. He spent the better part of a decade as an executive at Pixar before the company was acquired by Disney, and he started his career at Next, where he worked with the late, great Steve Jobs. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about Collective Genius, which was published last summer. And as I mentioned in the intro, named one of the 20 best business books to read this summer by Business Insider. In doing research for it, what did you and your co-author find was the most reliable predictor for a successful innovation leader? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. Originally, I had noticed that leadership in Silicon Valley was different than what I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to be working at two Steve Jobs companies, three actually, Apple and Next and Pixar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I worked at Apple, Steve wasn't there, so I guess that doesn't count. <laughs> um, but one of the things that uh, my co-authors and I discovered is that people who are leading organizations that are innovative think about what their, their role is differently. So lots of people think of a leader as being the visionary mm-hmm. and that the visionary you know, tells everybody what to do and everybody else goes and does it. But what we found is that successful leaders of innovation that are able to cause innovation to happen time and time again, they don't think of their role as the visionary. They think of their role as shaping a context in which other people can thrive. Mm -hmm. And so what we had found was that many people have written about innovation and many people have written about leadership, but nobody had really focused in on what do leaders of innovation do? Because what the leader does actually matters. You know, as an example, it's, you know, you have to have an organization where uh, you can say what you think and, that you know, your ideas are challenged, you have diversity of thought, failure is tolerated, and you, know, you have to define what Taylor is. But in any event, the leaders are trying to set the stage for all of the people's slice of genius, and everybody has a slice of genius, to come out. Okay. And, and so you mentioned working for a couple of, of Steve Jobs companies, and I think there is a, or three, and, and I would say Apple, what, you know, whether or not he was there at the time, I think it's safe to say that that's, well, maybe not in the 90s, you know, when it was, when it was 
you know, uh, in, in trouble. But I think it's safe to say Apple is a Steve Jobs company, no matter when you were there. But but so do you think it's a misguided notion that, that he was the one who really set that agenda for innovation? Was he more of a ringleader that, that enabled the people that worked under him to come up with successful ideas? You know, that's a really good question. So there, so Next and Apple mm-hmm. were more heavily driven by Steve than Pixar was. Okay. And, but they also had a much, I would argue, a more narrow focus. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but they, they were a technology company trying to build you know, consumer products and so forth. Mm-hmm. And Pixar, amazingly, is a story company that happens to use really advanced technology. What Steve's gift was, in my view, having worked for him for 14 years, mm-hmm. uh, was the ability to attract people that were the absolute best in their field and bring them together and make them work together as a team. So he could have people that, you know, you always have personality conflicts, I'm just going to say, you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's get real about life. Sure. Not everybody gets along. But Steve was such a force of nature that you may not l- like what that other group is doing or you may not want them to succeed, but Steve is not going to let you uh, do that because he, keeps, he kept people in line and he called them on their bullshit, for lack of a better word. <laughs> um, so, and that was actually why I ended up working at Next. I mean, I had no intention of going to work there. I just wanted, you know, I was told by the, by the recruiter that you know, in order to get a job, you know, he'd shot down, you know, the previous 20 candidates and uh, they were really getting desperate. And uh, I realized, oh, I get to go meet Steve Jobs. I don't really want this job, but, you know, I'm going to go and interview. But it took me four days of interviews to get to the final 10-minute interview with Steve on the fifth day. Mm-hmm. And all the people I met at Next were just the smartest, nicest, most thoughtful people you could want to meet. And they weren't all the same. They weren't just cookie-cutter people. They were all different. And so I realized, oh, my God, what, he, what they have here is this filtering process of selecting people by the interview because if you can go through this interview and realize, oh, I so want to work here, uh, you're either, the interview was so tough that you either were going to love it or hate it because these guys were the best in the world at what they did. Yeah. And I was interviewing. I didn't tell one thing, which is important to the story. I was interviewing for the director of IT job, mm-hmm. and I was a director of software engineering currently at the time. And I didn't want to do IT. Forget that. That's like boring, <laughs> right? Uh, but Steve's idea was he wanted to have the IT group be as good as his engineering group. So I had to interview with the heads of engineering, and we had the best old time because, of course, guess what? I'm an engineer. So we had a great time talking about stuff. Nice. And what was that 10-minute interview like? Intense, I imagine? Um, <laughs> actually, it was a really funny interview, and I'm convinced that I did the right thing and understood what was going on. But I didn't really know at the time. But afterwards, I realized, oh, I think I know what he was doing. So here's the 10-minute interview. Uh, I get into a conference room. Steve Jobs comes in. He says, hi, I'm Steve. Uh, I said, hi, I'm Greg. And then Steve says, okay, I just want to talk about a couple things. And so he went to the whiteboard, and he pulled out a marker, and he started drawing this picture of a spreadsheet and how you could make 
your entire company's accounting system run inside a spreadsheet. And he says, what do you think? And there's just so many reasons why this won't work um, that it was kind of like, I didn't really know why he was saying this to me because it's like, yeah, I mean, I imagine if you really modified the spreadsheet, but then you'd have an accounting system. So anyway, I basically pointed out, well, it's not going to work for this reason and this reason and this reason. It will do these things super well, but these other things really not well, and I wouldn't do that. And after 10 minutes, he says, oh, that sounds great. I think you'll do. <laughs> and left. <laughs> so he wanted somebody that would challenge his ideas. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's actually what he's interviewing me for, was to find out whether I was going to roll over when he told me something that wasn't, he might have actually believed it. Actually, I have no idea. I never <laughs> did ask him. He might have actually believed that he could do this, but it was like, you know, we were having a discussion, and we had a great discussion. Yeah, definitely. So so let me ask you about conflict and, and, and the importance of it to driving innovation, because something you write about or something you and your co-authors wrote about in a, a piece of the book that was excerpted in the Harvard Business Review I thought was really interesting, and it was about how a leadership team at Google basically set up two uh, different project teams within their company to basically to fight about what was the most uh, about what was the right engineering solution to a very complicated problem. So why is why is fostering that that um, environment of competitiveness something that's important if you're really going to push innovation forward? Huh. Interesting. So interesting that you interpreted it as competitiveness. So as human beings, we all want our ideas to be right. But honestly, what's more important for a company to succeed, it's not whose idea is right, but what idea is right. In fact, you know, later on, uh, many, many years later, after working at Next, you know, Steve, when Steve was, and I were at Pixar, uh, Steve said to me, you know, it's more important to be successful than it is to be right. And so he even understood that, you know, he wants his ideas and Steve had the ego the size of the universe. Um, he understood that he wasn't always going to be right and he needed to listen to other people and get the right ideas. So the person that you're talking about that we wrote about in our book and interviewed extensively and was kind enough to let us into Google and see how it really ran, his name is Bill Corrin. And this guy is the most unbelievable, great leader of innovation you'd ever want to meet. He is nice. He is smart. He thinks outside the box. He's unconventional uh, and just a really down-to-earth guy. Mm -hmm. And so he took advantage of the idea that Google had 20% um, time in such a clever way. And he did a number of different things, but I'm going to talk about 20% time. I want to talk about the problems that Google was facing and so forth. Mm -hmm. So at the time, Google was, they were basically running on search. That's what they did. So this was in the early 2000s. And they were making money hand over fist with search because nobody had ever done this before. And it worked really well. But then they came out with, they bought YouTube and they bought, um, or they started doing Gmail and they started doing Google Apps. And it turns, turns out that the way you build a file system for doing search is entirely different than how you have a file system to do, to play back a YouTube video, for example. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you're doing a search and you're trying to search everywhere in the world for a piece of information. When you search, you actually have to go across your entire file system and find the information you're looking for. Okay, so 
and that, that piece of information could be anywhere in the world. Whereas if you're going to play a YouTube video, presumably it's stored on you know, maybe five servers somewhere. You go find a file and you just play it back. Not that hard, right? But the Google file system wasn't built for this. And Bill knew that the demands on what the file system was going to be was much, much higher than what they currently could support. So using 20% time, this is the notion where employees can work on with one day a week, they can work on anything they want. It doesn't have to do anything with their job. And so Bill figured that when somebody starts a project of their own that they just think is interesting, mm -hmm. if they get another person to help them, and then another person to help them, and then another person to help them, what's happening is, is that you are using wisdom of the crowds because the ideas that are interesting and hard and important will attract the other engineers at the office. And so what happened was there was a group in New York that came up with this idea of, well, you know, our file system clearly is not going to work for YouTube and Gmail and apps and so on. We got to build something new. And I think we could build a better thing if we just start over. And so there was this group that was going to start over and rewrite the whole Google file system. And then there was the original group that wrote the really seriously, one of the most brilliant file systems ever, which is the Google file system. <laughs> and by the way, this is not something you can go down to IBM or go down to Best Buy or somewhere and buy it because guess what? Nobody in the world had ever done what Google was doing. You couldn't go out and buy the stuff. And Bill knew this. And so he knew that he had to solve this problem internally. So now he's got two groups going, one which has the original group, and they say, no, 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 you don't need to go write this from scratch. We'll just bolt some stuff on top. And the group from scratch is saying, no, 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 you can never bolt stuff on top because that all it's just going to turn into spaghetti code. You have all these exceptions, and it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill knew that it was a really important project, and, so, and he knew that he, ha he didn't have to make the decision right away, but it, but it was important to get it right. And he didn't want to have the problem where you have team one, which is building the new system, and team two, which had the old system, that if one of them won, that the other one was seen as a loser, right? right. Because then you've basically painted these really fine engineers that are really trying to do a great job for your company as failures. So he's trying to manage solving this problem of we need a new file system. And he's also trying to manage how do I keep these groups from hating each other so much that they'll never work for each other again or hating the company so much for having failed them that they quit? Mm -hmm. And so what he would do was he would have meetings with each of the groups and he would say to each of the groups and say, you know, independently and say, you know, you guys are writing some stuff from scratch and it doesn't have that many miles on it. And so it may not work exactly the way you think. I mean, Software always has bugs in it, and so what would be interesting to see is when you really stress this in a production environment, what happens? So why don't you guys take this and give it to the operations team and let them run it in one of their data centers and see what you find out? And these are the guys that you know their pagers go off at 4 in the morning when something goes wrong, and they're, <laughs> they're going to give you feedback on whether your file system is any good or not. Right. So these guys listened to that, and they went and did their tests, and they found out, okay, well, there's some issues here. 
And then he went to the other guys and said, hey, you know, your, your file system is unbelievable, but you have to, how are you going to serve up Gmail where it's just for this one person and the data is not spread all over the world? How's that going to be fast and fit into what you're doing? You know, could you do some tests that show that you actually get good performance if you do it this way? And so we'd ask questions like this to just point out what the other team was doing that was smart or things that he could just see about each team that maybe there would be areas where it wasn't going to work so well. And he wasn't doing this to like pick on them. He was doing it to actually help them think more deeply about the problem. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in the end, it turns out that, you know, at the end of that, you know, two years, eventually he needs a new file system and he's got to pick one. Right. Mm-hmm. And what you, what he didn't want to have happen, as I mentioned, was he didn't want to have one team be the loser, one team be the winner. And then in, in over the years in asking these questions the way he did, he illustrated that both, to both teams that, you know, those other guys are pretty smart too. And what they ended up with was simply they needed a bridge solution because they, didn't, they weren't going to have the right solution right now. And so solution, the, the bridge solution was, let's take the original file system that we have, we're going to bolt some things on top of it so it'll do roughly what we need, and then we're going to form another team out of both groups, you know, with members from both groups, to work on the real thing that we need. And that's what they did. So everybody came out a winner. Yes, in, including the consumer, because I can search anything in Gmail dating back to about 2008, and it will pop up at the drop of a hat. So uh, hats off to both of those Google teams, and thank you very much for not making me ever archive an email. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. So how nice is that? So they, these guys are seriously smart and they figured this out. But you know what? Also being seriously smart means that you want your ideas to win. And Bill somehow managed to make everybody feel okay that it wasn't their idea that won. What was more important was the right idea won. Yeah, you know? definitely. So, so let me ask you about the, the crux of the book, uh, which in, in, in large part, I think, is putting forward a framework that leaders can use uh, to create innovative environments in, in the workplace. So I, I know that it's long enough that you can't sum up everything in a you know, two or three minute uh, snippet or else you wouldn't have written the book. But are there some, some main overarching points of the framework that you can share for people? Absolutely. So we have sort of, there, there's three areas that you have to be good at being able to do. And this is just in, in executing sort of, for lack of a better word, executing your ideas. Mm-hmm. So one is creative abrasion. And I described a little bit of that in the Google story that I just told you, mm-hmm. where you're bumping ideas up against each other to make the ideas become better. The next piece is creative agility, which I also illustrated a little bit in the Google story, which is, why don't you try this test and see if that works? And the idea of doing the test is, is a lightweight test to find out if the thing you're building is working mm-hmm. so that you can adjust appropriately. So, for example, deploying your file system in a real environment, that's a good test. Then uh, the last one is creative resolution, how you go about um, resolving or deciding what you're going to do. A lot of places they take, you know, team A has uh, idea A, team B has idea B, they get into a room, and then you compromise and what you end up with is the lowest common denominator. But as I described with what, in the Google story, Bill actually came up with idea C, which is 
we need a better, they're great ideas from group one, they're better, they're great ideas from group two. We need to meld those together and come up with a new thing, which is idea C. So he took A, you know, idea A, idea B, B, and he merged them into C. Uh, So that's the general sort of execute part. But while that's going on, there's a lot of human emotion about who's right and who's wrong, and you get into heated debates. Uh, You're not allowed to have interpersonal debates. And this is the idea that we write about, which we call community. And community has, community is what holds the company together when all this stuff is going on. You know, it describes the purpose. Why are we here? What are we trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. It describes how do we treat each other uh, with respect, with trust, you know, influence. It describes what are our values, you know, responsibility, collaboration, learning, bold ambition. Mm -hmm. And so the leader's role that is different now is he's tending to make sure he's tending the area. He's working, you know, working the fields to make sure that he has creative abrasion going on, but it's not getting out of control, Mm -hmm. but he has creative agility going on. But when there's a failure, people aren't shot for failing because failures are going to be expected because if you're trying something that's new, it's not going to work every time. Right. I mean, you do, you know, like if somebody's, making the same mistake five times in a row, that's a different thing. Right. Okay. But if somebody goes and tries something and it just, you know, it doesn't work for some reason, you don't shoot them for that. It was, you know, you were with them when you said, let's go try this. And so this is the idea of psychological safety that comes out as being part of a community. It's where you know that the rest of the community is going to support you in your ideas and what you're doing. And so you go and you think way outside the box and do things that, are much riskier than you would do otherwise because mm-hmm. you're not worried about your job. Yeah. And, okay. and have you seen in either in your experience at, at next and Pixar and then Disney or in your research for the book, have you, have you seen kind of common things that leaders at, at companies do to foster this community where there is, you know, both safety, but also, you know, the, the, um, the ability and desire to take wild risks Yes. <laughs> I don't know how much time we have here, but I have a five minute story that will illustrate this. Yeah, let's, let's do it. We have time. Okay, great. All right. So your question is, do I have any examples that illustrate how do you build psychological safety? How do you build uh, a community and so forth? Uh, and do I have examples of that? So it turns out ironically, uh, the psychological safety piece is something that I learned really the hard way at Pixar. Mm -hmm. So we were making Toy Story 2, and this is really early on in the early early Pixar days. So it was the late 90s. And I I had just gotten there. You know, Steve had said to me, hey, you know, I got this other little company up in Point Richmond called Pixar. Can you go help them with their technology? And uh, so I eventually ended up at Pixar. And... I'm working there and I realize, wow, we're in the business of making movies that generate a billion dollars in revenue. I better make sure that the data that we're creating is protected. Because mm-hmm. remember, this is a computer-generated movie. So how many times have people that are listening to this, have you accidentally overwritten a file and lost it? 
or you accidentally deleted a file, or your laptop got stolen with all your data and you didn't have any backups of it, mm-hmm. or uh, you know any number of ways that you lost information. Well, my group and I were not, we were cognizant of the fact that uh, disk drives fail, things break, you could have a fire in a machine room, and we put in place a number of defenses against this. So, Defense number one, which we thought was clearly going to be, you know, would take care of most of the problems, was back in the day that, you know, disk drives failed much more than they do today because technology has improved significantly. And so there was this idea of, of RAID systems that would, if one drive fails, the rest of them keep going and cover for it. Uh, so if we had a hardware failure, okay, no problem, we're not going to lose any data. Cool, we can sleep well at night. But then we realized, okay, well, the hardware failure is not the only thing, you know, might have a fire or something else. So what we should do is also mirror the data. And mirroring data is basically exactly what it sounds like. If you write a set of data to disk number one, you also write it to, say, disk array number two. Mm -hmm. So that if disk array number one, if anything happens to it for whatever reason, you still have exactly the same stuff over on disk array number two, and you just like chop disk array away one, and you keep on going. And this, cool. this was before the days or at the very early stages of cloud, I suppose, right? There's no uploading yeah, or there saving was no directly. Cloud. Yeah, okay. Right. No sorry, cloud. Sorry to yeah, interrupt. This, it, no, that's a great question because we were basically building the, one of the first cloud sort of storage systems at Pixar, and we did do that. And at the time, we had built one of the top 10 privately held supercomputer centers in the world, and we were only like 500 people. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about the scale at which we were working with the few number of people. Yeah. Anyway, so this, there was no cloud, and we were basically making our own. Um, so we made mirroring. Then the next thing, it's like, okay, well, mirroring's good, but you know, if something happens in this machine room, that wouldn't be good. So why don't we put another computer over in this other machine room, and we'll just use this package called, it's like zip, but it's on, in Unix, it's called tar. But like, you know, gzip that you have on your computer, on your Windows machine or on Mac, and you take a bunch of files and you zip them together and you can put them somewhere. And so we said, you know what we'll do is we'll zip up all the files every night and we'll ship them over to the other building across the network. No problem. So then if anything happens to this room, machine room, we're covered. Uh, and then we, just for belts and suspenders to make sure everything was okay, we had a big tape jukebox, and every night we ran backups to tape, and we sent the tapes off-site. Might it be an earthquake? Who knows? Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you all that to just explain that my team and I were not stupid. We understood that this stuff was worth a billion dollars. But one Tuesday evening at 2 in the morning, I remember it clearly as it seared into my memory something went to the root directory of Toy Story 2 and deleted every single file. Oof. All gone. And it's like, oh my God. But you know, it's like I wasn't that worried because I just described all the defenses we had. Sure. But think about the mirroring. Okay, so if mirroring is working properly and I delete something that has been I say to, to, to disk array number one, delete all these files. If the mirroring is working properly, disk array two should execute that exact same command, right? So you've lost the data in both places. 
it's like, oh, crap, okay, fine, 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 no problem. Go get the, the zip file from the other machine. Well, unbeknownst to us, we had um, crossed the 32-bit to 64-bit computing thing. And all that means is 32 bits allows you to address 4 gigabytes of storage. 64 bits allows you to address some unknowing, unknowable large number of storage, but you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just so big that you don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But when we started on Toy Story 2 and we set up the system, we only had 2 gigabytes of data. But when this failure happened, or when this delete happened, we had hit 40 gigabytes of data. So we only had the first four gigabytes of the data and nobody had noticed that there had been error messages going on for months because we had passed the four gigabyte threshold. And so it's like, oh, all right, so that didn't work either. All right, all right, all right, no problem. Please go get the tapes from offsite. We'll put them in the jukebox, we'll restore them all, and we'll be done. And it turns out that we bring all the tapes back and this is the classic, you know, perfect storm of things that can go wrong. Uh, the operator who brought them back and put them into the jukebox to be restored, he wasn't, you know, he was under a lot of pressure and he was working hard and he inadvertently forgot to set the right protect tabs on the tapes. So he put all the tapes in the jukebox and there was so much data that it didn't all get restored in that day and every night backup jobs kick off and the backup job said, Hey, look, here's the tape. It's not right protected. I can write to it. Ugh. And it started writing over all of the data we were trying to restore. I was like, Oh my God. Anyway, this, I just described, you know, it seems like it all happened in a day. This actually happened over a period of weeks because as we discovered each thing was, you know, various things were broken, we then worked on, you know, going trying to figure out a different way of getting it back, right? Mm -hmm. And let me just tell you, everybody in the company knew this had happened because, like, <laughs> you can't hide from the fact that there is no more Toy Story 2. And our group and I, like, it was dangerous to walk in the halls, okay? People were very upset with us. And after I realized that the tapes were on, I wrote my resignation letter. I took it to my boss. I said, God, I'm really so sorry that this happened. And, you know, here's my resignation letter. You know, there's no point in you firing me. Uh, and he said, no, um, I don't think so. Steve and Ed and I, this is Lawrence Levy, who was the CFO at the time. Steve, Ed and I walked around the company and we asked people, was the problem that happened here something that could have happened to anyone, or was this just that Greg and his team are a bunch of screw-ups? And happily, the, my colleagues uh, realized that we were reasonably competent and said, thank God I was, I'm not Greg because that would have happened to me. I mean, the chain of events that happened here, it's like impossible to even imagine that that would have happened. And yet it did. And it would have happened to me. And so Lauren says, look, you were, doing, you were working outside so far out in what was possible to be done that, you know, something's going to go wrong. And, you know, who knew that it was going to be this? And you're probably wondering, okay, so there's a Toy Story 2 out in the world. How'd that happen if it got deleted? Right. Okay. And this is the other piece of the story that's relevant, and then I will wrap this up. While we were making the story, 
our while we were making Toy Story 2, our lead supervising technical director, Galen Sussman, had just had a baby. And so she came to us and this is and said, Look, I know this is a crazy thing to ask, but could you make a copy of the file system because the you know networks aren't fast enough for me to read this across the network? Could you make a copy of Toy Story 2 so I could work on this at home during maternity leave because I want to stay in touch? And we're like all scratching our heads because like, well, first of all, here's this woman that we're going to give a billion dollars worth of data to and she's going to take it home. How do we know she's not going to show it to Sony or DreamWorks or whoever else, right? Right. Uh, that sounds crazy. But then, you know, we get our heads around it. No, it's Galen. Yeah, yeah, we trust her. It's fine. But then we have the problem of technically, it's a really hard thing to do. So, I mean, she had to take home essentially a device that was the size of a mini refrigerator because that's how, mu- that's how much it took to store that much data. So we copied it all on. We took it to her house. We set it up. It all worked. And this was like a month before the accident happened. Mm-hmm. So the way we got the movie back was because Galen had a baby. And when this thing, this program at work, deleted all the files, of course it couldn't touch her, pro- her computer. So we sent people to her house with like, you know, 300 miles of bubble wrap, <laughs> and we bubble wrapped up that, 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 that uh, disc array, and we brought it back to work you know, in, in, in a truck that has you know, air suspension and everything. And we hooked it, hooked it up, and we very carefully copied the data off, and that's how we got the, the movie back. So the movie was completely done at the time? Yeah, it was, no, it was in process. Okay. I mean, we could have gone and recreated it, but people right. had like a year of work in it. And it takes four or five years to make these movies. They had a lot of work done. Yeah. And so, I want the, so there's two lessons to be learned here. So thing one, everybody in the company had seen that my team and I had failed in a big way. And yet I didn't get fired. So now imagine how the people in the company are going to think about their own jobs if they're doing things that are reasonable to do, maybe hard, maybe ambitious, maybe outside the box, but they don't have to look over their shoulder anymore and worry about if this goes wrong, am I going to get fired? Because here the leadership of the company had demonstrated to everybody that you don't get fired for making an honest mistake. Right? Yeah. So that to me is psychological safety. And then the other piece here I want to just make sure that people understand is think about the trust that the senior leadership at Pixar had in their employees in that they allowed Galen to take home on a computer at her house the entire movie that's worth you know a billion dollars. And she could have easily, I mean, if she was a bad person, she could have easily shown it to press people or competitors or, you know, people that are trying to do the same thing. And we would never know. I mean, she didn't do that. But the fact that we were so trusting of our employees that we didn't even really bat an eye in doing this to me was amazing. And again, that trust, when you start thinking about that, how do people pay you back when you trust them? They work harder for you. Yeah. And so I know it's kind of a crazy story and you know, some people say, well, you were just lucky. But if you actually think about it, we created by the way we manage the company our own luck. Because if we hadn't trusted Galen, we wouldn't have had 
that data to back, you know, to survive. Right. Yeah. I know it sounds crazy, but you know, you never know how things are going to play out. Right. It just turns out in this case it did, but trust and psychological safety from my point of view are things that really built the community at Pixar. Yeah, definitely. Well, it, it sounds like it's a good thing. She brought more than one baby into the world, the human and <laughs> Toy did. Story 2. She has a number of kids. And, <laughs> and actually, if you go and if, you, if any of your, uh, if anybody who's listening wants to go online, Galen and uh, another guy, uh, Oren Jacob, put together a little video animation of how a baby saved Toy Story 2. It's like, <laughs> it's like 45 seconds long, and it is hilariously funny. Because it goes through basically the story I just told you of, oh my God, <laughs> all the files are missing. What are we going to do? And they go through the story and it's all animated with little characters saying it. It's pretty funny. Okay, nice. Fantastic. Well, psychological safety, a, uh, a key element of building a community that supports innovation. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Some, uh, some great thoughts on how to, to lead innovative teams. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been, really, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. If you'd like to learn more about Greg Brando, you can follow him on Twitter at at Greg Brando. You can also buy his book, Collective Genius, at any online bookseller or in bookstores around the country. Thanks again to Greg Brando for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Elliot Susel, head of product for paid services at AOL, joining us to talk about lean Agile, and the evolution of software development. We'll look at why the Agile transformation is more about transformation than it is about Agile, why engineers need to think like business line owners for Agile to have maximum impact, and the concept of using information radiators to inform your development team and influence your product roadmap. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.